Welcome to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a Baptist church located in Lexington, Kentucky. We have a heart for God and a deep love for people. You can learn more about our church by visiting www.gracewaylex.org. Now, here's this week's message. I invite you this morning, if you have your, if you have your Bible or if you have a copy of the Bible on you, uh, please join me in the book of Isaiah again. That may sound familiar to We're going back to Isaiah, all right? Uh, we promised that we would get back to Isaiah and try to finish it out, and that's what we're going to do. Uh, Lord willing, we're going to cover uh, chapters 40 uh, today. And then we're going to move through 40, and then by the end of the year, uh, we'll be able to say that we've completed the book of Isaiah. We're going to cover chapters 40 through 66. Pastor Chris and I are going to kind of tag team on that. Um, That's our plan, at least, unless the Holy Spirit interrupts that. And uh, so uh, we always want to be mindful of that. But so if you're looking at that and you're doing the math and you're, 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 you know, you're like, that's like 27 chapters, Pastor. Um, And there's only like six weeks if you take away Christmas there. So uh, um, you're doing the math and you're thinking... I should have packed a lunch. I really should have packed a lunch. Yeah, we're going to try to cover chapters 40 uh, through 48 today, um, and not verse by verse, mind you. Uh, all God's hungry children said amen to that. But, um, but anyway, so we're going, to, we're going to just kind of take, like I said, we're going to take a, a satellite, a space satellite overview look at this, because we could really get in into the weeds, and each chapter could be a series in and of itself. That's the depth of God's Word, by the way. We already know that, but we're going to take an overview of this. Um, Isaiah, it's found uh, right after the books of poetry of Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, all that. It's right there after Song of Solomon. Um, it's, we know this. It's, it's one of the major prophets. It's in that classification of the major prophets. And what's the distinguishing factor between a major prophet and a minor prophet? Anybody remember? the number of chapters, the length of the book, right? So really you could say minor prophets were very concise and could say what they needed to say like quickly and uh, major prophets were more like <laughs> two guys you know pretty well that are, that are long-winded. So, uh, so that's why we identify more with the major prophets, all right? So you just have to deal with that. But um, Isaiah's broken down into two major sections and when we broke, we, we finished that first section, all right, that first section after chapter 39, and then now we're going to pick up in that second section uh, and, and go through that hopefully at, uh, by the end of the year. And speaking of the layout of Isaiah, what's interesting is Isaiah has been kind of called that microcosm of the whole Bible, of uh, the breakdown of the Bible. Um, so if you compare the Bible as a whole to the book of Isaiah and the way that it's broken down, the Bible has 66 books. Isaiah has 66 chapters. Um, It's broken down into two sections. You know, there's the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Bible. Isaiah is kind of broken down into two sections that kind of mimic that a little bit as well. Old Testament has 39 books. Guess how many chapters are in the first section of Isaiah? Yeah, 39. New Testament has 27 books. How many chapters are in Isaiah in the second section? 27. Kind of spooky, isn't it? You know, that's just, uh, just a little weird. But, but and, and if, if we could claim that the chapters and verses also had inspiration of God, we would think that God was doing something. This is just something that they added in there. But the subject matter of chapters 1 through 39 kind of look more like an Old Testament subject matter, whereas 40 through 66, we're going to see a lot of prophecy that leads to Jesus and to New Testament belief in Jesus Christ. So really, we're going to be looking at the New Testament section 
of Isaiah uh, over the next over the next several weeks, and um, it's really interesting. And I, I love what uh, Warren Wearsby says in his commentary. He says Isaiah forty through sixty six is often called the New Testament section of the book. It's twenty seven chapters in it, similar to the twenty seven books of the New Testament. It begins with the ministry of John the Baptist, pro- uh, prophesying the ministry that would come of John the Baptist in chapter forty. You also see that happen in Matthew chapter three, and its emphasis is on Christ. And salvation, and at the very heart of this section is chapter 53, which is the greatest Old Testament prediction of Christ's death on the cross. While Isaiah 1 through 39 emphasizes God's judgment on His people, Isaiah 40 through 66 sounds a note of comfort and redemption. It was written to encourage the Jewish remnant that there would be deliverance from Babylonian captivity after their 70 years of captivity. And what's interesting is Isaiah wrote this prophecy over 150 years before the remnant would ever need it for encouragement. So what we're getting ready to look at, although it's already happened, when it was written, it was 150 years from happening. And that's how we know that God inspires his word, right? He inspires his word. So uh, I'm one who believes that Jesus doesn't show up at Christmas time uh, in the Christmas narratives. Jesus is seen throughout every page of Scripture. Even though he's not mentioned by name, he is alluded to. There are metaphors that lead him to it. There's a need that is explained for him. Jesus is dripping from each page of Scripture, not just in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well. And we're going to see evidence of that as we walk through these next few chapters uh, of Isaiah together. So I want to take our initial text today from a good chunk of chapter 40. Like I said, we're going to try to move through chapter 48 uh, today as we look at this. Um, but it's kind of under, it's important so if we take a little bit of a break to understand where we left off. When we left off at chapter 39. Do you remember where we were? It was Hezekiah, you know, that king who had been given 15 years of extra life and, and God had blessed him. And what did he do with that blessing? There were some, some people from this little upstart little town or this little upstart nation called Babylon who came to visit him. And what did he do? He let him come in. And at this time, Israel is much greater and much more mighty than Babylon. Doesn't think that Babylon's a threat. And he says, hey, I'm going to show you around. I'm going to show off everything we have. Here's all of our military power over here. Here's our great treasury. Look at the great wealth that God has given us. And he basically gave them a backstage pass to see everything that God had given. What he also did was he showed every vulnerability that they had. And it was an exercise in pride. So God's response to that was, this was a bad idea. This was actually an epic bad idea. And God says, there's going to come a day few generations off in the future when Babylon is going to rise up and all that treasure that you bragged about having is all going to be carried from here, from my land. It's going to be carried away to this pagan land in Babylon. And your children, your ancestors, instead of being part of this great and mighty nation, are now going to be taken in exile, oppressed by the nation of Babylon. Taken from everything they know and everything they hold dear and they're going to be taken someplace new, taken away. And my city, Jerusalem, is going to be sacked and laid waste. Man, that's a tough place to leave off, isn't it? But if you look at it, if you remember all the way through the timeline of Israel's history, it's a timeline of, we love you, God. Oh, we don't like you, God. We love you, God. Oh, there's a shiny God over there. And they would leave. It's constantly going to God and running away from God. Doesn't that sound familiar with, doesn't that sound a little familiar to our life? It's an example of of our lives with God as well, how fickle we can be. And so really the thing about this is God would be completely justified if after chapter 39, that was the end of the book of Isaiah, right? 
I mean, he gave Israel chance after chance after chance to come around and follow him and be faithful to him. But so many times, their faithfulness would only last for a little while, and then they would be unfaithful again. But we saw that they didn't do that. And here we see another example in a prophecy that in 150 years, you're going to see the result of your wandering from me. That teaches us another lesson, church. That sometimes in our wandering, it doesn't just immediately pay dividends. Sometimes the dividends of our wandering today pays out later on in people that we may not even live to see. But in our ancestors, the Bible says that sins of the father are evident upon second and third generation sometimes. So God would be completely justified in just dropping Isaiah 39 and, and not giving us 40 through 66. But thankfully, our God is a God who doesn't leave things like that, right? Because chapters 40 through 66 begins to show us his plan of redemption, his plan of restoration, and his desire that he will never leave or forsake his people no matter what. See, he moves on Isaiah to pin the words of 40 through 66 to serve as this comfort to the people to remind them in the midst of their coming trouble that victory is already promised. See, he's, not only did he say, here's what's coming, this, this, this coming trouble, but let me tell you what's coming after the trouble there's a victory beyond that trouble. There's coming a day when all things are going to be set right. There's coming a day when everything is going to be set right. So what he's saying is, I'm going to ultimately give you victory. I'm going to ultimately secure you in me. He's not going to abandon them. He has a plan for them with a hope and a future. They have a future in him, and they're going to need that prophecy. They're going to need that reminder as they sit under exile and oppression for centuries to come, under Babylon, under Persia, and then we get into the New Testament times under Rome. They were holding to these prophecies that one day our Messiah will come. One day our redemption will come, and God's going to set all of this right. And isn't that kind of a metaphor for us? Right? We, we aren't Israel. We have to understand that we're not Israel. We are Gentiles. But we find a lot of metaphors and a lot of promises that Israel held on to. It really helps to serve. This is, we have our promises in the Father. We have our promises in our Savior that we need to hold on to when life gets tough. That we need to hold on to. When we look around the world and see it seems like it's complete chaos, we have to hold on to the promise just like they did that God's got this under control. He's got it. We're kind of living in that same kind of mindset. Here's the thing. Adam and Eve gave up the keys to the kingdom when they sinned. And it brought sin and death on all of us. Right? They had their Hezekiah moment there. And it had generational effect on all of mankind. And Romans tells us that the wages of our sin that we've inherited is what? It's death. Right? But what? The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And everything changes on that three-letter conjunction right there. Right? But. We may not know when, but like Hezekiah, we've been told that because of our sin, death is coming, and God would be completely just in letting that be the final verdict. But what has he done? He's provided us, just like he did with them, he's provided us another section called the gospel. He's provided us with a plan of salvation. That yes, what we've earned in our sin and in our rebellion is death and separation from God, but here's the other section. I'm sending a son. I'm sending my only son. And I have sent my son, that if you'll place your faith in him, you'll fall under the family name 
And you will be protected and you will be mine. Another way, a living hope in the gospel that we hold on to. It's a comfort that we hold on in time of sorrow. It's comfort that we hold on in time of loss. At every funeral we go to and we know that the person in that casket is a believer, we know that they are much better off than they are right now. It's that hope that we have. It's that other section that, yes, chapter 1 through 39 of our life is sin and death, but man, chapters 40 through 66 is living hope in Jesus Christ. So our life kind of is like a microcosm of the book of Isaiah 2. So we set the stage for what we're going to look at in this passage this morning. I want to look at a pretty good chunk of chapter 40, and then we're going to pull out some highlight verses, because I think chapter 40 sets, sets up this whole section of, of chapters 40 through 48. But we see the very first word right after all of those words of prophecy of coming doom. What's the very next word in this, in this what's the very first word in this new section? Comfort. After all that prophesy of there's coming doom, what does God say? There's comfort coming as well. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and announce to her that her time of hard service is over. Her iniquity has been pardoned and she has received from the Lord, Lord's hand a double for all of her sins. A voice of one crying out, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness. That's a reference to John the Baptist that would come. Make a straight highway for our God in the desert. Every valley will be lifted up. Every mountain and hill will be leveled. And the uneven ground will become smooth and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will appear and all humanity together will see it for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice was saying, cry out. And another said, who should we cry out to? Because all humanity is like grass and all his goodness is like a flower of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fade when the breath of the Lord blows on them. Indeed, the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord remains forever. Zion, herald good news. Go up on a high mountain. Jerusalem, herald of good news. Raise your voice loudly. Raise it. Do not be afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. See, the Lord comes, the Lord God comes with strength and his power establishes rule. His wages are with him. His reward accompanies him. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. In the middle of the chapter, we see references to God's vastness and to the fact that he's incomparable to any other false god that there might be. But let's skip down to verse number 28 at the end of the chapter. Because we're going to see a completion of how he cares for his own. We saw that in verses 1 through 11. Let's look at verse 28. It says, Do you not know? Have you not heard that the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth? He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the faint and he strengthens the powerless for the weak. Even the youths may become faint and grow weary and the young men may stumble and fall. But those who trust in the Lord, they will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles and they will run and not become weary. They will walk and they will not faint. I don't know, man. Maybe it's because I've read it over and over and over and over this week. But this is powerful. A powerful promise. That God is in control. Does our sin bring consequence? Does our sin bring judgment? Yes. But what God brings in the midst of even that judgment is comfort to endure and comfort to wait upon God's victory as well. So this morning, as we're approaching Thanksgiving, what we really see in this passage is going to be, kind of, this passage and then all the way through chapter 48, Isaiah is going to take the time to lay out a bunch of prophecy. We've already seen that. John the Baptist is going to be the voice crying in the wilderness. The path is going to be made straight for the one who's going to save us. All of those things. 
in, in, in chapter 40. But we're also going to see Isaiah begins to set God up as the great God, the only God. As we were talking with the kids with Thanksgiving, I want to ask you this. What is it that we really have to be thankful for? What is it that we really can say, God, I, I thank you? Because when you look around, sometimes the chaos of the world makes us think, man, I, I just don't understand what you're doing, Lord. Right? What's, what's going on in Israel and that? God, what are you doing? We have all of these assumptions of what God could be doing, man, and we're going all kinds of different places with it. Ultimately, what we know is God is doing the same thing he was doing before all that started. He was being God, and he was being our Lord, and he was being our God, and he was being the same God that can be trusted. But what are some of the great characteristics of God, and they're laid out here in this passage that we're going to look at this morning, that hopefully will help set our minds and help set our hearts towards gratitude when Thanksgiving comes around this Thursday. So the first thing that we can be thankful for, the first great thing about God that we can be thankful for is the greatness of just who he is, the greatness of his character and the greatness of his ability. And we're going to fly through some of these points. Like I said, it's going to be satellite view, so we're going to move fast, all right? And you're thinking, I've never heard you move fast, so let's see it happen, right? The first thing that we know about who he is is that he's a redeemer. Verses 1 through 5 tell us this. After delivering that prophecy of coming judgment, the very first word out of that judgment is comfort. And how's he going to comfort it? He's going to comfort us through redeeming us. Verse 2 says that there will be a time of forced labor, but that time of forced labor will come to an end, and God will be the one who ends it. And he says, and your sins will also be pardoned at that point. I believe that this is an allusion to what happens when we're saved. When we're saved, or before we're saved, we're under forced labor. We're slaves to sin and to the flesh. But what does salvation do for us? It sets us free. It breaks that bondage. And it says the time of your forced labor, your forced, your forced servitude to sin and the flesh is over. You now have victory over that. So what's so great about that? We, we lose the miracle of redemption because we talk about it so much in church, I think. We lose the miracle of, I once was lost, but now I'm found. We lose the wonder at, I once was a sinner, but now I am set free, and I've been made pure by the blood of Jesus Christ. We kind of lose the wonder over that, and it kind of just becomes something that we just get used to. You know, we should never get used to that. We should, we should return to that so often and say, God, man, I don't deserve it. But Lord, you, you gave it to me. You gave me forgiveness. You chose to give me forgiveness. You made it available to me. We can't forget or lose sight of just how fortunate, how favored we are that the gospel is available to us and that God redeems us through Christ because we have no other way to be redeemed. This is the way. This is the only way. It's the only way. So he's a redeemer and he's also greater than we are. And that's a good thing. We're not holding on to a dead icon somewhere. He is greater than us. He has conquered death and the grave. He has spoken everything into motion. He has formed us from clay and breathed the breath of life into us. He is greater than us. Verses 6 through 8 tell us just how much greater he is. I love verse 8 of chapter 40 where it says, The, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord, it remains forever. Right? What's that tell us? We're like grass. We're like flowers. Some of us are, are pretty enough to be flowers. Some of us are just normal and grass, right? But we all wither, we all fade. But what remains? God and his word. Times will change. Seasons will fade and come and go. But one thing we can trust in is the word and the promises of our God. He's so much greater than we are. 
He's eternal. He's righteous in his judgment as well. In verses 9 through 10, reminds us that when God returns to set all things right, he's going to carry with him what it says, wages and rewards. What's that mean? Yes, there's going to be judgment. Yes, there's going to be a time of, of recompense for our work here on earth, but that he's the one who's righteously going to hand that out. Tells us that he's in authority over everything. He's also tender in how he deals with his own. Look at verse number 11 again. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. Here's where we begin to see those allusions to Jesus Christ, right? The great shepherd. It's almost like you're reading a little bit of Psalm 23 as you look at that verse, isn't it? begins to tell us that he is tender in the way he deals with us. Is his judgment fierce? Yes. But as a father, he is tender with us. Tender and nurtures us through all of it. He's over all of creation and the nations. And, and then he's also, he's greater than the idols that are around as well. I love what Isaiah asks the question in verses 18 through 20. Who's like our God? Who is like our God? We know the answer is nothing. We can say that, but oftentimes we live different than what we say because we put our trust in things so much more than we do in God sometimes. We're tempted to do that so many times, saying, well, man, I trust God that he's the provider, but then when the budget starts to get tight, we get really scared. God knows what you're going through, and God is still the provider, right? He's greater than the idols, and who can compare to our God? We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a second. But, and he's also strength to the weak and victory to the weary. We read that at the very end. He is our strength. A lot of times, and this is what I struggled with a lot of times when I was young in the faith, is because I had a big tendency to really just be legalistic in the way that I approached my faith. I thought if I checked this off, if I was doing this, if I was doing this, if I was doing this, God would be happy with me and then he would just, you know, everything would be going good. What I needed to come to understand is I couldn't do any of that if he hadn't given me the strength to do it to begin with. I thought that me pulling myself up by my bootstraps brought me closer to God, but it's the Lord bringing me in. He's the one who brings me in. He says, even the youths, okay, why does he say even the youths? Because they need it more, brother. No, it's not because of that. It's because they're the ones who are strong. And they're the ones who, are, who, who think that life, life is just a given, man. And he says, even they will grow weary and faint. Even the strong, even the energetic need me. He's our source. So it's the greatness of who he is. Let's look at the greatness of what he's doing. Look at the greatness of what he's doing in chapter 41. It's God, and the first thing is that God is working everything for his glory. Everything that's going on, everything that's going on in your life has gone on before in your life, going on today and going on tomorrow and the days to come. God is working all of that for his glory. All of it. He's working it all. What if I told you that everything that's going on, all the good things, all the bad things, all the chaos, God knows all of it and he's working in all of that and he has a plan in all of that. No matter how many times we try to wander away from his plan, we can't derail him. We may derail our lives, but you won't derail him. You don't derail God. You see, what if God's working under all of those things and everything is working under his authority and his dominion, that everything that's happening, God is working in the midst of it toward the end of his glory and the redemption of his own. Would you believe that? And church, oh yeah, I believe that, brother. I believe that. But what happens 
when you're in the doctor's office tomorrow and you get a diagnosis that you don't want to get? What happens when you're sitting down and you're working on your bills and you find out there's a whole lot more bills than there are checks to pay them? What happens when you're faced with a tragedy or a loss in your life and it just doesn't seem to make sense at all? Do you really believe that God's in the midst making sense of all of that? Can we really believe that? See, in our text, we see that God raises someone from the east. In in chapter 41, the Bible says that God's going to raise up this person from the east. In chapter 45, he's going to be named as Cyrus, the king of Persia. What's awesome to me is he writes this 150 years before it even happens. Isaiah writes this before it even happens and names the name of the guy. Tell me, corners, I said to you, you are my servant. I've chosen you. (laughs) Man, I love this. I haven't rejected you. I haven't rejected you. Now, had Israel done things over the centuries to probably be worthy of rejection? Absolutely. But he said, I haven't rejected you and I won't. He's going to go even further in that encouragement as we move into chapters 43 and 44. But the encouragement is this, because God is great, because he's in control, and because he never grows faint or weary, and because he's working in all things, and he's working them all together for his glory and our good, We don't have to fear. We can stand in the midst of not understanding what God is doing, but completely trust his heart that what he is doing is the best thing that could be done. And that's hard to do when we don't understand it. So he's great in who he is and what he's doing, but he's also great in his mercy. And that's when we move into chapter 42 and 43. Verses 1 through 9 of chapter 42 introduces a servant, it says, who's strengthened by God and he will, according to verse number 3, Faithfully bring justice. Who do we think this is talking about? This is where we see Jesus alluded to again, right? It's Jesus. Matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 12, we see this very text that is quoted to describe who Jesus is and the purpose of the Messiah. This is the very thing that will be said about him when when he arrives in person. Jesus is introduced as an agent of justice, that he is the one who meets out God's justice. You see, what we know about Jesus, he's prophesied to come first in meekness and in, and, and in grace. And next, he's going to come in judgment and in justice. We can only be prepared for his judgment and justice if we've received his grace. That's why he came first in grace and mercy. But when you turn the page to chapter 43, you see God is the agent of justice, but he's also presented in another role. In verse number 1 of chapter 43, it says this. This is what the Lord says. The one who created you, Jacob, the one who formed you, Israel, do not fear. There's that do not fear again. Why? Because I have redeemed you. I've called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you and the name, and and, I'm sorry, I'll be with you and the rivers will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched and the flame will not burn you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel and your Savior. I've given Egypt as a ransom for you. Cush and Seba are in your place. See, God is a God of justice, but God is also a God of mercy, right? And his mercy is needed because if we all just got justice, man, if we all got what we deserve, we couldn't be here worshiping. We couldn't. But because Jesus is not just an agent of justice that is coming one day, he is an agent of mercy who has already come for us. He's already come to show us mercy. And here's the explanation of his mercy. He uses these two illustrations. If you're stranded out in rushing waters, what is supposed to happen to you? 
You're supposed to be overcome and you're supposed to drown. But what does it say? He says, when you're in those waters and you're about to be overcome, you won't be overcome because I'm with you. If you're stuck and engulfed in flames, what is supposed to happen to you? You're supposed to perish by burning. But what does it say in the scripture? It says, when you walk through the fires, you will not be touched because I will be with you. That's mercy. Mercy says, I know what should happen, but here's what I want to happen and I'm going to make it so for you. That's what God's mercy has done for us. So he is great in his mercy. And how much mercy did he have to show? Every ounce that he has. But he always has more. Always has more. He says he gave up his only begotten son so that mercy could be shown. We talk about salvation as though it's a free gift. It's free to us. But it was not free to offer. It was not free to offer. Jesus paid that price. He walked through the water. He walked through the fire. He took the nails. He took the lashes. He took the sins of the world upon him on his shoulders so that we could have mercy. That's not justice. An innocent man dying in the place of the guilty, that's not justice. That is mercy. So he's great in his mercy, but he's also great in his promises. I told you we're going to move fast through all these. So I encourage you, if you feel like, man, we're moving fast and I'd like to catch up, go home, read, read 40 through 48. It will, it will bless you. But the greatness of his promises that we see. We see the notable statements shift in verses 40 through, 44 through 45 from fear not to another phrase, I will. God says, fear not. Here's why you don't have to fear, because I will do this. You don't have to fear because I've got great and precious promises that you don't even begin to understand that I'm working out. God promises restoration and redemption through him. Verses 1 through 8 basically gives us an idea where he says that God is going to bless their land. He is going to heal their land. He is going to then reign as their righteous king. And he's going to, first of all, in order for all that to be awesome, he's going to restore them to their land. So while they're sitting over there in exile in Babylon, they're holding on to this promise that one day we're restored to this land. And we get back to that land, God is going to bless it. He's going to restore it, and he's going to then reign as our king. All that's required for this to happen is that the people must just trust him. And the people must repent of their sins and come to a knowledge of God. See, there's nothing that can stand in the way of God keeping his promises. Why? Because he's omnipotent. Nothing can stop him from keeping the promises. Also, he's omniscient. He's not going to make a promise that he knows he can't or won't want to deliver on. There's nothing. When you see a promise in the word, it's just as sure as already done. Already. Verses 24 through 28 point out how God intends to restore and rebuild the broken city. Basically, he's going to move on Cyrus's heart to fully fund the project. Again, we talked about that just a minute ago. It just blows me away the way God fulfills the promise. I'm going to restore you to your land. I'm going to build it back up. And you know what I'm going to do? That treasure that was taken away, <laughs> it's coming back because Cyrus is going to dip into the treasure that he got when he took over Babylon. It's coming back to us anyway, and we're going to rebuild the city with it. It's almost like God knew what he was doing even in the punishment, right? It's like he was just holding it in the bank for the day he knew that it was going to need to be done. This tells me that when God makes a promise, it's not a question of if, but it's an anticipation and an excitement of how he's going to do it. To look forward to, how are you going to do this one, God? I know you're going to. I'm just waiting to see how. 
God promises that everyone will one day attest to his glory and the lordship of Christ. This is a promise that we oftentimes doubt in the way we live. How many people do we know in our lives that we think are just a lost cause? About to give up on. The Bible says that one day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. God will be glorified. He's going to be glorified. Look at what it says in verse number 22. An invitation is given to any who would repent and come to him. Look what it says. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I'm God and there is no other. By myself I've sworn truth has gone from my mouth, a word that will not be revoked. Every knee will bow to me, every tongue will swear allegiance or will confess. It it will be said about me that righteousness and strength are found only in the Lord. All who are in rage against him will come to him and to be put to shame. I love that in verse number 22. Turn to me and be saved. It's an invitation to anyone and everyone to place their faith in him and find the redemption that is promised and that is coming. So far, all we've seen, all we've looked at, all the twists and turns that we've taken, all the things that have been said from 39 and all the way through has led to this invitation. Turn to me and find salvation through all of it. Turn to me. Our only hope and your only reasonable response to his greatness should be that we turn to him and rest in his greatness and fall upon his great mercy and note the greatness of who he is. But then there's the greatness of his power as well. Why should we turn to him? Because he's got great power. It ends in 46 through 48. These two chapters describe the utter ruin of Babylon, what's going to happen to Babylon and how Cyrus is going to lay waste to all of that. In verse 46, again, he kind of sets up a, 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 almost like a, a T-chart, if you will, an imaginary T-chart of, okay, you got me, God, and you got the little G gods over there. Let's see what we do. Let's see, let's see the difference. Verse number, 40, verse number 5 of 46 says, To whom will you compare me or make me an equal? Who will you measure me with so that we should be like each other? Those who pour out their bags of gold and weigh out silver on their scales, then they go and hire a goldsmith and makes that into a god. Then they kneel down to it and they bow down to it. They lift it on their shoulders and they bear it along and they set it in its place. And there it stands. It doesn't budge from its place. They cry out to it, but it doesn't answer. It saves no one from his trouble. It, it, it's fascinating that the, the, the gods that, of the world that we worship, we created. Only God that we worship here is the one who creates us. We do all the work for our little gods. But God, big G God, did all the work for us through Jesus Christ. And what's amazing to me here is, is that after Babylon is actually defeated, after Babylon is sacked, what happens to their gods? Persia carries those gods off and melts them down and makes them into their own gods. But what does our God do? God's not being carried anywhere. God carries his people back to their land. I would much rather have a God who carries me than have a God that I have to carry everywhere I go. Because that's not a God, that's a knickknack. It's a knickknack. See, only God's going to stand victorious in the final analysis. Verses 3 through 4 of chapter 46 say that it's God who carries his people back home while the defeated Babylonians have their gods carried away in defeat. 
God has promised us victory over sin and death through Christ and only through Christ. He's our God. He's the one who carries us. He's the one who does the work. What he asks for us to do is rest in him. Verse number 17 of 48, and I promise we'll be done second. This is what the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel says. I am the Lord your God who teaches you for your benefit, who leads you in the way that you should go. And if you look down to verse number 20, what's, what's the response to that knowledge? Leave Babylon. Flee from Chaldeans. Declare the joy and the sh- or declare with a shout of joy. Proclaim this. Let it go out at the end of the earth and announce the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. That phrase, leave Babylon, to us today means leave your sin. Leave your exile and return to Jesus. Return to God. Leave that distance that you are away from God because he wants to bear you up on wings like eagles and carry you to where you need to be in him. But what we oftentimes do is just we sit there and we grow comfortable in our exile because there were people, there were people in Babylon, there were Jews in Babylon who just got comfortable with it and they put away their worship of God and all that and it was almost like a, a, a strange idea of the past to them. But what do we see in the example of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego? We see those guys, those youths that let God bear them up on wings like eagles and they soared and they led a nation back to God through their faithfulness. Leave Babylon, turn from the Chaldeans. And then he says this, it's a, he says, proclaim this, proclaim this joy. What that is to us is it's the gospel. Once we've left, once we've come to the gospel, we should share that with others, proclaim it to others who are still in prison and those who are still under sin. So as we wrap up today, there's three things I want you to consider. What do I have to give thanks? What's my response to this great God? Is just to be thankful for Him, right? My response is to give thanks to Him for His greatness. My, my response should be also to trust Him in His greatness. If He is great, we should trust His greatness because he's, all that greatness that He is and possesses, He's working all that greatness out for his glory, but also for our good. We're involved in his greatness. But the biggest thing is to call out to him for his greatness, for the greatness of his salvation. If you've never done that, today's the day. If maybe you've been wandering away and you've lost the joy of your salvation, today's the day probably just to kind of come back to that and say, Lord, I've kind of wandered. Like that old song says, I've wandered, now I'm coming back home. It's not being saved again, it's just renewing that relationship. We need to catch up. You know, we've been gone for a while. I've been gone for a while. I need to catch back up. We covered a lot of ground today, and there's a lot that we, like, skimmed over. So much. But my prayer today through this whole thing is that we would walk away with an understanding of just how great God is, how good He is. And what we have to be thankful for is that, man, He could have just chosen to say, I'm done with you. But I love what that verse says. I have not rejected you. I'm with you. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time that we've got to Thank you for listening today. At Graceway, our strongest desire is to glorify Christ by telling everyone about His grace. If you have questions or are in need of spiritual help, please reach out to us by visiting www.gracewaylex.org and click on the Contact Us section. Or you can email us at gracewaylex at gmail.com. Our worship services are held each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. 
We'd love to worship with you this week. Until next time, take care and walk in the way of grace.